don't think I have memory problems, but <laughs> I, I do want to make sure that I've covered it. And, you know, sometimes there's some pretty big things get left out of the mix. I'm a big email guy because email's a darn good written record of what, what went on. Yeah. Well, I mean, and in the age of FOIA, right, I mean, you're, you you got to have everything I have printed out emails to make sure that they don't get lost and put them in project files in years past because I was concerned that what was communicated to me by someone would be forgotten. There's nothing forgettable about you, John Lanzini. No. <laughs> Unforgettable. <laughs> that is what you see. Are. Charlie Pride died. Did you see that? Yeah. Of COVID? Yeah. That bummed me out. It's this whole this whole year, man. It's like it, I I think I think Curtis Conley may have posted this on on Facebook somewhere. It was like, you know, why does 2020 have to take all the country legends with it? Yeah. Is he staying around now? I don't know. I mean, I see him. I see him posting and like communicating stuff about being here, but I don't know if he's like permanently here or if he's like. I mean, I was sorry to see him leave. I'm not super close to Curtis. I know his mom real well and his grandpa. You know, Tommy Gliss. I knew him very well. No, well, shucks, the world yeah. of him. How uh, did you? Did you? I mean, you you would have been. You would have been doing what you're doing or in a similar form and function when Tommy was still being like really active and moving around. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Tommy was a great guy. You know, I mean, some people didn't like him cause he's such a stickler for detail and but he wrote, he, he, he ran a tight ship and he, he did some, some great uh, rental property uh, development, you know, um, some of this, some of your small mom and pop places can, compete with places like the reserve or university village or aspen court mm -hmm. or, you know and, and he did no um I, I i grew up just down this down the street so i've you know that's and grandma and grandpa knew on john Tom. city down the street from tommy's house or yeah yeah down uh -huh. the street from tommy's house so i i my i grew up down neil lane so hunt road is uh, just backs up to that, basically. Yeah, yeah, just backs yeah. up to that. So, I, so my great aunt Dorothy had like most of that property back there. That that like if it wasn't like you, you hit Tommy's farmland. Was she a hunter or a Columbo? She was. She was a. She would have been a hunt, but I don't. Yeah, I think she would have been my grandpa's sister. Okay. Uh, or maybe she even had a different last name from a married name. I don't. I didn't know a bunch about Aunt Dorothy. I just knew. I had an Aunt Dorothy too. <laughs> he was a real tiger. Lived to be ninety-seven years old. That's great. Now, aunt, my my Aunt Dorothy. She lived right at the intersection of Hunt Road and Neal Lane. Okay. So so it would run down the gravel, and then you'd have Hunt Road there. And I, I don't but know. You really can't drive through there anymore, right? No. So there's it's kind a, of a there, private drive type of. Yeah, so it was there. It, um, oh my gosh, um, Tony Lloyd, um, had that property there, it's got the farmhouse on it. Uh, and he he generally kept that gate locked down after Aunt Dorothy passed away. And Aunt Dorothy usually kept 
the gate locked down and now the gate's locked again. I don't know if it's the people that have that or something that I know this because the mail lady came up the other day. Uh, this has been probably three weeks, four weeks ago or so. And she was like, hey, uh, I, I can't get around here. I would usually go through this gate and, you know, we, they've got us on the software that tracks us. We can't turn around. Uh, <laughs> I've been trying to explain to me all these things. Yeah. I was like, I'm sorry. I don't I don't know anything about the gate now i was like if it was 15 years ago i'm your guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh man some interesting people out there mary nell chu she's very interesting ah uh, you know it was it was funny uh, you know just mary nell seeing mary nell as i'm as i'm getting older and and she's the type of person that we have that right she's like i remember when you and you and your baby <laughs> just like her, her, her sons, one one is a year younger than me, and the other one's about three years older than me. But uh, I actually, and then I had a boss that lived across Mary Nell Lane from there and used to actually run his mobile home moving business out of there. Really? Ken Marquard. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you know Jennifer Gutierrez? I did drone. I did, she, she needed, she wanted to, she wanted like some, some pictures for her dad for, for, um, Cause he, he was going to stop doing all the decorating out front of the house. And, um, so, he, so she, uh, she had me do some drone footage of the house and pick some stuff up for him. It didn't come out great, but it was, you know, it was something right. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't phenomenal work, but it was, it was cool enough that, um, I wish I could get this to work. It was cool enough that, um, you know, she was happy to like share it with him. And that could be his, you know, a real cool memory of it. And, whatnot yeah ken was like an older brother to me he he lived across the street from us on james street i started mowing lawns for him before i could drive uh -uh. and then i started working out at a trailer court on park street and then started working for him his mobile home moving business and did a lot of stuff with him paid my way through college working for him oh the glory days when you could pay your way through college working a yeah. job <laughs> national guard that's what i say now I mean that's I mean that's pretty much what people's options are. I mean, it's like go to the military or be in debt. Well, my 17-year-old son, he already says he's going to he's they they have a program now where you can go to basic between your junior and senior years of high school. Wow. And then you do your AIT after that. Then the the point is you can go to college with your regular class with mm -hmm. your your same high school class. I don't think that's such a big deal. My older son was actually in the Army Reserves and Took their benefits, and he was an ROTC. He never finished school, though. You know, the uh, the folks that do ROTC and and some of the some of the oh the 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 National Guard. So I mean, it it just it seems to work really well for a lot of folks. It, it does, but ROTC is a huge time commitment. Yeah, and some a lot of those guys are in both because they're they're trying to maximize their benefits. But it's a huge time commitment when you're doing both. Is there one more sound thing? That I gotta look at here. Maybe, maybe not. Um, all right, cool. We're we're there. Uh, the good thing is, John, I've been recording for like seven and a half minutes already, so we're already in there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> okay. For episode thirty-four of the WTF Carbondale podcast, uh, the podcast where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all back together with this little place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois. Uh, and you usually, I would ask people like. How did they come to be in Carbondale? But I'm pretty sure there were just like rocks in Carbondale one day. And then, you know, that, you know, one of those rocks got split in half. And 
then we had John Lanzini because uh, he is the salt of the earth to this place. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for letting Gary push you out and make you do this. Well, there's a story behind the, you know how the Lanzini family got to Carbondale. So I'm gonna since you brought it up, I'm oh, yeah. gonna I'm gonna tell it because I think it's a, it's something that maybe a lot of families that, that moved to Carbondale opposed to World War II maybe maybe have in common. Both sides of my family are originally from Centralia, Illinois, which is, if you're not familiar with, it's a community about 50 miles north here. My father was uh, went to college during the Depression and had to drop out. Long and short of it is, is he ended up working for the WPA, and that morphed into uh, basically a job with the Illinois Department of Transportation. Uh -huh. He was an engineer with the Illinois Department of Transportation. By the time the 50s had rolled around, middle 50s, when my parents moved to Carbondale, uh, or early 50s, uh, they already had four children. Mm -hmm. And my father was not, had not been assigned, I guess, a permanent post with IDOT. So he was given several choices, and he said, you know what, there's a university in Carbondale, Illinois. And since he was never able to finish his studies at, at the University of Illinois, mm -hmm. he wanted someplace accessible for his kids, his four kids at the time, to go to school. After they moved down here in the 50s, and my brother Joe was born in, uh, I believe, in 1956, and I was born in, in 61. Mm -hmm. All five of us, uh, I'm sorry, five of the six of us went to SIU and graduated, and many of our spouses and many of our children, too, have, have also gone to SIU and, and gotten degrees. So, uh, I, I think the whole story with SIU, you know, I think is still and, and was back then central to the story of Carbondale. Oh, that's cool. And like you guys, you, like the family has an engineering background. They do. My, my dad is an engineer or was an engineer. My oldest brother, Pete, uh, was an engineer, graduated actually from the very first engineering class at SIU. Wow. Um, Played football here for one year. Then he went to U of I after working in private practice, got his, his master's there and was an instructor at U of I. And then my older brother, Joe, also uh, has an engineering degree and a forestry degree from SIU. I, my degree is actually in management. Uh -huh. So we have a little bit of everything in the, in the, in the Lenzini family. My brother, Phil, uh, graduated from the very first law school class at uh, SIU after coming <laughs> back from, from the Vietnam War. Um, so he's in there with people like Judge Schwartz, Judge Lowry, who also graduated in that same class to mm -hmm. put things in perspective for. My sister Dorothy graduated in uh, English and got a master's degree in English at SIU in like 1962, 63, somewhere in there. Uh -huh. Met her husband, who's originally from Chicago at SIU. Again, I think a theme that is very, very prevalent um uh with carbondale and siu a lot of people from chicago move down here and stay down here and yeah. some of them go back to chicago and then send their kids down here later on but i think there's a real tie to chicago for for carbondale and siu oh man that's that's cool i mean and and just you know so there are folks i i myself right i went to siu but i'm not like rah-rah siu type right like i'm very much like Carbondale is my town. SIU happens to be part of this town to me, but for a lot of folks, it's very SIU forward, right? And it's kind of it's kind of neat to see on your end as somebody who is, you know, born and raised here that um, that for you SIU is very like 
forward in your Carbondale identity. It is. It's, and I'm a sentimental person, which makes it worse. We grew up on South James Street. So, you know, now what they call the Arbor District, and I always joke with people, I say, you know, I grew up in the Arbor District before anybody called it the Arbor District. But uh, <laughs> we lived, you know, a half a block north of Mill Street. We, I can remember when Mill Street, you know, barely, but I can remember when it was a relatively small street and they made it into a four lane. Uh -huh. But, uh, you know, we used to ride our bicycles over on the SIU campus all the time, play around the lake and everything else. And, you know, and we were relatively young kids. Today, I think you'd probably be arrested if you let your kid roam like we did. But we were, <laughs> we were those free range children. Uh -huh. We had an awful lot of fun. And still, when I go onto the SIU campus, I still like to go around, walk around campus lake with my wife and and uh, like to go through the old part of, of campus and stuff. When I see those old buildings, um, it, it, uh, it, it kind of sends chills up my back. What's it like having that institutional memory of these things? I mean, you know, it, obviously the chills up the back is a very like clear, like you're able to access an entire life's worth of memories by standing in one spot and going, this was it in 74, this was it in... 86 this was it in 99 this is it in 2010 and now and just like snap through all of that all at once the, the bad part is though you think oh my goodness i've turned into my father or my <laughs> older brother who's you know almost 20 years older than me and and so you know it's funny because people ask stuff about you know historic preservation or you know and there's a whole website i'm sure or a facebook uh, page on you know carbondale history and everything else yeah. so if i'm ever at a loss for trying to remember what was in some place in Carbon? I just phoned one of my older brothers, you know, or, or text him, you know, or my older sisters and stuff. And uh, it, it's funny. You take, for instance, Civic Center, where I work. That was, you know, a, a commercial district, you know, before with places like PN or Hirsch and Kroger. Or it was either Kroger A&P. I think it was actually A&P was actually behind. It didn't, it didn't front Illinois Avenue. Uh -huh. But the funny thing is, here I am, you know, uh, I can remember being, you know, a, a, a young kid going to, you know, A&P or P.N. Hirsch or Ben Franklin, Western Auto, all these little downtown businesses. Yeah. And here, you know, 50-some years later, I haven't moved hardly at all. I'm in the same place. <laughs> so, you know, you, you kind of get that old codger type of, of, uh, of adjustment, I think, uh, when you hear yourself talk about stuff. That's I, so I being 31, I'm not quite there there, but I'm still partially there. Like I, I started hanging out. Well, arguably I had my first solid food at Mary Lou's. Like that's where grandpa yeah. would take on Sunday mornings, but then take, go from, go from Mary Lou's as, as the point of focus and understanding. Cause that's where grandpa would take you to, to, to breakfast, to being a, being a, preteen and teenager riding your bike up to the strip to hang out at the arcade downtown to right. working at restaurants on the strip to you know you know then participating in stuff like this now where you know volunteering and like engaged in you know the actual community development it's like all of these things are an equation that adds up to something and everybody kind of gets their own outcome on the other end but you sir have a have a <laughs> yeah. have such a very applicable so you you talked about not not leaving place, but you've still been around the world and done some things with your life. You haven't just stayed still. Well, no, you know, you, you, and I think probably people get this a lot when they're, they live in Carbondale, you know, they get out of college and, you know, I didn't have a plan. I'm going to tell you when I got out of college, I didn't really have a plan. 
it didn't seem to matter back then either. You know, I did the thing. People talk about working the gig economy. I guess for a while I was probably one of those those people working the gig economy. I worked yeah. for a couple contractors. You know, when I, I worked my way through college working for a local landlord, cutting yards, you know, fixing things all the time. That morphed into becoming a carpenter. And then I worked for a, you know, as a guy for a guy here in town, a small contractor, became a lead carpenter. Then I got lured by a brother-in-law to move out east. I actually moved to the state of Connecticut in, I think it was 1985 or 86, mm -hmm. late 85, I think, and uh, and went out there and worked for, for a, you know, as a contractor, self-employed contractor for, you know, about uh, six or seven years. Mm -hmm. My sister actually still lives in Connecticut. And a lot of things happened in my life. I won't go into it, but... Basically, I had an early midlife crisis, and, and I was not happy with, you know, I was a little bit burned out from working construction and chasing yeah. a dollar, and, and and that's hard. And, and uh, when I deal with small business people nowadays in, in the job I have, I think about that. It's extremely hard being a small business person. Yeah. It's very, very challenging. Uh, I love being a carpenter, and, and really, honestly, I could have probably for years until my body gave out. <laughs> Going to work on a construction site, nailing one two by four to another two by four, and been perfectly happy. There's just something about that lifestyle. It's totally different than working in an office or, or working for a big organization. Yeah, and I, I and that draws a lot of young men and 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 women too. And it drew me. And um, but I kind of got that pressure. It's like you know, why don't you go do something? I had a college degree. You know, why don't you go do something with your life? You know. Why don't you get a real job? Stuff like that. <laughs> and, and that upsets me, too, because construction is a real job. And I, I never ask money from anybody. Mm -hmm. I I always paid my own way. I'm proud of that. And uh, um, I, I think that's another thing. And I see young people out there every day working very, very hard to put themselves through school. I see people working very hard at Walmart and fast food places and everything else. And one of the things that, that I like about Carbonell is, is is there are common, hardworking people like that that don't put on airs and and act like they're all that. Um, that's that's something for us to think about, and I think respect for a working person is is a very important thing. Uh, I know because that was my life for for so long. But that, uh, anyway, in yep. in Connecticut, like I say, I things changed, um, had some issues with various things, and. I know we talked about this earlier off air. The, the late 20s for me were kind of a rough time. I was trying to find myself. Uh, my father passed away here in Carbonell very unexpectedly. Um, some other things went on, and it, and it was tough. Uh, I Needless to say, I was not in the place in life at, at 29 or 30 years old that I expected to be. Yeah. Uh, so I woke up, you know, and I'd been, been reading some books. At the time, the men's movement was kind of a big uh, issue. I, I The author's name escapes me, but... There was a book um, called Fire in the Belly, mm -hmm. which I read, and um, it was it was kind of shed some light on some things. And you know, I decided, you know what, I, while I'm still a relatively young man, I like to do something different in my life. So I joined the Peace Corps. Yeah. And um, and I joke sometimes, but oh, I rolled over one more and decided I joined the Peace Corps. That's not exactly true. I the Peace Corps back in the 80s when I graduated SIU at the at the employment service office they had there at the Peace Corps at the uh, at SIU had you know applications for the Peace Corps they also oddly enough had op applications for the CIA <laughs> and uh, which I think is a certainly speaks to the dichotomy of uh, of the world but Anyway, you know, and I said, you know, that would be really need to, do, need to do. But, you know, when I got out of college, I literally had like $50 to my name. Uh -huh. And I had a, I had some student loan debt, too. Not not huge, but 
You know, I had some student loan debt, and I just didn't feel like it was right. You know, seven years later, it felt right. So, oddly enough, while I was in, in Connecticut, uh, you know, I applied, accepted my application, and they said, well, you need to come down to downtown New York City for an interview. Now, I'm John Lindsay. Yeah, I've been living in Connecticut for six or seven years, and I've driven on the periphery of New York City, and I've been to Boston, I've been to Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, but downtown New York City. In what year was this? This is like 1990, 91. Yeah. So, so is this is this 90, like right 90, on the cusp of Rudy Giuliani's sure. like uh, sanitized New York City? Well... Sort of. Believe it or not, I did not spend a ton of time there either. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Can I? I, I just. I, I'll, I'll let you go here in just two seconds. But I. This is really cool connection to the podcast I did with Gregory Went, um, just Friday because he like he was in New York. He like he's from New York. Like we watched five minutes of like downtown protest activity that he filmed in 1991. So like the connection between just having seen that two days ago and listening to your little hop into New York City. There's a surprising amount of people from New York City that live in Carbondale, which is (laughs) odd. But anyway, so so I drove down to New Haven because I'm not driving through downtown New York, and I and I basically took Amtrak down to downtown New York and then took the subway. Which Uh back then it was really funny because back then the subway used tokens. Yeah, you know. And, you know, I found a subway map and everything else. And, I, you know, being from Southern Illinois, and the part of Connecticut I lived in was a rural part of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So I kind of f- felt like, you know, do I have any, like, you know, hay uh, straw, like, sticking out of my hat or anything? You know, <laughs> I, you know, it, it just you real duck out of water, you know. But I found my way. And funny thing was, years later, um, my son joined the, uh, joined the Army Reserves and was going to basic training, I believe it was 2014. I believe after he graduated high school, and we took a trip out to, to see my sister in Connecticut. And we went down to New York City because that was the first year the 9/11 memorial was open, and I kind of wanted my son to see it. I think there's a lot of significance with him. You know, he was very patriotic, and I wanted to see. I wanted him to see the 9/11 memorial, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's a very touchy thing. It's, it's it's got to be the absolute saddest thing that that I've ever been to. I think that everybody ought to go there. Uh, I, I think every uh, leader in our country ought to go there uh, for sure. But anyway, when we went there, I made my, I, I did the same thing. We drove down from Connecticut, went to New Haven, got on Amtrak, came into into um, New York City. And now the subway no longer uses tokens. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, shoot. You know, I'm like, <laughs> ugh. They, you basically have a debit card that the uh-huh. machine spits out. And, of course, New York City subway bureaucrats are not real helpful with explaining things to you, you know. So we figured it out. But we basically took the subway then from, from I guess that's Grand Central Station or Union Station. I always get those confused. But anyway, over to Times Square. And, of course, you know, my kids, you know, relatively still young. You know, my one son's 18. The other one's like 11 or 12. And, and so it was a real life experience. Uh-huh. You know, after that, we, ro- we took a cab. But oddly enough, again, I found my way down there and had an interview, you know, with a real nice lady downtown New York. And it was actually very, very near the 9-11 complex. So uh-huh. it's, it's funny how your life kind of comes around. But uh, but then 
they accepted me into the Peace Corps, and uh, they were initially going to send me to the Congo. Uh-huh. And it was a really neat job. I was going to be building these trails. My sponsoring agency was the World Wildlife Fund, uh, building trails, cabins, bridges. Of course, as a carpenter and an outdoorsman, it was great. I mean, yeah. how many times are you, you know, do people ever get to see Africa in their life? Well, then they something changed, and they had to reassign me. So they reassigned me to Honduras. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of bummed out, but by then I'd already closed my business, sold off a lot of tools. I was working basically for other contractor friends of mine, just uh-huh. to have a little cash. I'd come back to Illinois for several months to see my mom, do some work on her house and things like that, and uh, and get reacquainted, too, with Southern Illinois. You know, I'd, I'd not been on a lot of trails in the Shawnee that I used to hike when I was a Boy Scout and stuff, uh-huh. and... and uh, so it really reconnected with Carbondale and with, with Southern Illinois in that, that three or four months I was back. My brother was also starting a house. I was helping him get that off the ground. So, uh, so I, by then, you know, I said, well, I'll take it. You know, I, I need to go. I want to go. And it was funny because I'd actually started trying to learn a little bit of French to go to the Congo. Uh-huh. And so now I had to learn Spanish. <laughs> and, you know, I was totally SOL because I took Latin in high school. Yeah. Your one of your neighbors is actually my old Latin teacher. Oh yeah, Mister. I should have Mister. Mendrisky on the podcast. You should have Mister. Mendrisky. Oh on the my show. gosh! And I, I tell you what, I loved Latin, and and Dave Mendrisky was a, was a great teacher. CCHS. Uh, we had a lot of really good teachers at CCHS, and I know that that still exists today. Um, but we had some very very gifted, very very engaging, very very good teachers, and and he was one of my favorites. And uh, and he he obviously speaks several languages and stuff. But a anyway, young so, David, I, you you would have you would have experienced a young David Mendrisky. And I very young, very think, young. <laughs> he had done some time in the army and and stuff like that. But he was very young, and he was very passionate about teaching Latin and the whole Roman culture and everything. And and you know, you're an Italian. I'm an Italian. My my grandparents are actually immigrants from Italy, so yeah. I always now my grandfather got killed in the Centray Number Five coal mine explosion in the late 40s but my grandma lived on for for many decades afterwards and and she always had a very strong accent uh italian accent spoke italian and and my aunt spoke italian my dad spoke a little bit of italian my my older sister who lives in connecticut has actually got dual italian american citizenship mm-hmm. so italian culture was, was always something that we were we were raised on every every thanksgiving meal and every christmas meal we still start out the very first course as handmade tortellini mm-hmm. in, in chicken broth, which mm-hmm. is a northern Italian dish. And so it's pretty important to us. But uh, so, you know, uh, that was that was a, a cool thing. To, you know, the Roman uh, history was, you know, uh, really neat to learn about. Yeah. Uh, it's also grotesque in some ways. But anyway, so. You know, so I'm trying to learn some Spanish and everything else. And so, you know, I ship out of the Peace Corps. And, and I can't say enough about the Peace Corps. For several years, I actually spoke to uh, SIU people that were interested in, students that were interested in joining the Peace Corps. Yeah. A local Peace Corps representative would come to college. And we have quite a quite a big, what we call RCPV, Returned uh, Peace Corps Volunteer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people in, in Carbondale. Um, Sheila Simon's husband, for instance, is, is a, a, a returned Peace Corps. Joel Fritzler was a returned uh, Peace Corps um, really? uh, volunteer. Yes, huh. he was in, uh, in Africa. So, you know, it, 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 I always tell people today, don't wait until you're 29 years old, okay? 
There is nothing, for instance, my first job when I did get out of construction, when I graduated from SIU, was selling insurance, door-to-door, uh-huh. door, no less. Okay? <laughs> in 83, is that how economy, you learned how to talk, John? <laughs> well, in, in 83, the economy was not that good, and it was difficult to find a job. Your other yeah. jobs were assistant manager at, a, at like somewhere like Foley's or J.C. Penney's. It, it was rough, and none of those things really appealed to me, and—, and I think I took the insurance job out of out of a slick sales promotion by their company. But anyway, mm-hmm. I told him, I said, look, there is nothing about your first job out of college that you cannot miss to go to the Peace Corps. Yeah. Okay. It was a it was that thing that that changed my entire life. Okay. There's nothing like going to a third world uh country like Honduras where people have nothing. Honduras is the second poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti, just mm-hmm. to put things in perspective for you. And, you know, years later on, when, when you have so much talk about immigration and, and, and the Trumpism and everything else going on, you know, people like Donald Trump and, and many other politicians, many other people and pundits and everything else, they need to go down there and they need to live that experience, okay, for two reasons. You know, we have a lot of international impact on on countries, especially in Central America and South America, okay? And, and many times our effect on those countries has been adverse. We've used those countries to help us make money and everything else, you know? And I'll tell you what, the Honduran people are the friendliest people in the world. They're the nicest, most pro-American people there are on the face of the earth. Wonderful people, okay? Wonderful people, hardworking people, law-abiding people, and the portrayal that that Many of the of the this, the people the the human beings that w- was portrayed by Donald Trump is, is so unfair. It, it it sickens me because uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But to call people that you don't know liars and and thieves and murderers and rapists is you know. And, and again, I'm sure that 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 very same thing can be applied to the the, the people from Mexico that that immigrate here legally or illegally. Um, I have many, many friends, Latino friends from from various countries, and again, I I, I think the portrayal by by Trump was was bad. But the Peace Corps was one of those things that really opened up because I hadn't had, you know, a lot of cultural diversity. Obviously, growing up in Carbondale, you have a lot of cultural diversity mm-hmm. more than say DeSoto. Yeah. Okay. You know, we had university professors living on James Street that were from many, many countries and, and many races, many backgrounds, which was great. And my father was always, and my mother both were always very open to, to our neighbors and, and uh, young, old people, grad students, students. You know, that's something that's really beautiful in Carbondale, I think. And it was something that, that, you know, I think always my parents enjoyed because as they got older, they had young people living around them that, you know, continued to, to make them feel, you yeah. know, part of a more youthful society. But, uh, you know, that, that's a, a thing. With going abroad and living in another culture, you know, for 27 months, learning another language, I mean, that is, is such a big deal. You, you know, I tell my wife all the time, we, I, I met my wife while I was in Honduras. She, she's a Honduran native, uh, Sylvia. Love her with all my heart. Great wife. Been married over 27 years. And um, uh, it was funny because when we started dating, I always tell this story. I spoke very, very little Spanish. I Literally had been there about two weeks when I met her at a, at a fiesta that they were having in the community, in the training community where I was at. And she spoke no English. And, of course, many people that know me say, yeah, well, that's probably a good thing. You know? <laughs> so that was interesting. 
That was interesting. But, it, you know, it was a great thing. And sometimes I told Sylvia, I said, you know what? I went down there to save Honduras. I think Honduras saved me. You know, I, mean, I went down there and I worked hard. But, you know, you go down there and, and like I say, you live in a country that poor. I had no car for 27 months. I used to ride an old bicycle, an old, old black, like, three-speed bicycle that somebody gave me. It total pile of junk, but I used to call it my caballo negro. Well, that means my black horse in, in Spanish. And it's a very common type of bicycle down there. And in Honduras, the machete is, is everything. It's like your leather man pocket tool here. They're, you see the most inventive uses for machetes in the world, in, in, <laughs> in the third world. And most of the time, people don't even carry them in a sheath. They, they, they're very, the machetes they carry are very long, and sometimes three foot in length on the blade. And they're very sort of wobbly or flexible, so they weave them in between the frame of the bicycle to carry them. And Oof. this is a very common thing. You see it all the time. So, you know, when in Rome, do as a Roman. So when in Honduras, do as <laughs> Honduras. So I went out. I can only know, imagine a job I bought team. this machete. And, I, and, you know, I'm fair-skinned. And Honduras is a very <laughs> hot country. It, all, you know, it's really beautiful climate. But it's pretty hot. So I had this, this kind of like canvas cowboy hat, you know, and. And I tried to dress like a Honduran, and I was actually teaching building trades down uh -huh. there. So I was teaching, you know, how to put foundations in right and and lay blocks and reinforce them correctly and, and put on roofs and, you know, all this stuff. We built some furniture, everything else. It was, it was a lot of fun. But I lived in the very first house after the bus stop in this little uh, village called Guanchias, mm -hmm. uh, Santa Rita. And uh, that's... In case you want to look it up on the map, that's in the in the state of Yoro, in which is in the northern part of Honduras. So I would ride in. We were building a house for one of these guys who basically, he was pretty well off. So he paid these kids that I was teaching to do building trades a little bit of a stipend, and we were building a house for him. And it was a pretty good project. You had to get pretty inventive down there. The sponsoring agency that was working with me was was not probably as helpful as it could have been. Definitely <laughs> not like what the World Wildlife Fund yeah. would have been in Congo. Yeah. So anyway, so I would ride into, you know, about two kilometers away, I would ride in on this this old black bicycle with poor brakes, and I'd cruise through the bus stop, and all the people hung out in the bus stop, you know, that were waiting for the bus, or kids, mm -hmm. or, you know, young adults with nothing to do, they'd hang out in the bus stop until the wee hours of the morning sometimes. So, you know, I'd ride in, and, you know, the the... the Sometimes people would mess with me because, you know, I was the only gringo in town. And, you know, people call you gringo all the time. Some people have a hard time with, with that, that, that label. They, they find it offensive. But they would say, hey, that's a hot, hot bicycle you got or something like that. And I said, you ain't mean my caballo negro? And I'd whip <laughs> that machete out and wave it around in the air. And, and you know, Get and chase the kids, you know. So they had the, <laughs> the best time. That And, and there's a lot of other stuff. Like I say, the machete is like – everything down there you can slap it on the side of a concrete block house and it will ring like crazy so that was that was a lot of fun but uh and, and i got married halfway through my my term so my wife lived in this little dusty village of guanches uh with me for a year in a, in a small concrete block house two bedrooms we did have running plumbing after i put it in and uh <laughs> concrete floor no no carpets you know very little furniture and she had been living in the capital city, and, and it, she was actually in medical school. Uh -huh. So she made substantial sacrifices to hang out with us gringo. So, uh, but it was it was a really good experience. So I tell anybody today, if you're thinking about joining the Peace Corps, join the Peace Corps. Uh, it, it was it was great. 
And then, you know, after I came back, we actually had to return to Connecticut because that's where I had uh, disembarked from. And we spent, you know, about a month there. And then, and we had actually come back uh, one Christmas to Carbondale. And, you know, and, and by then, you know, my mom was kind of elderly in her mid-70s. And, you know, my dad had passed away. And, you know, we discussed it. And we decided to move back to Carbondale then. And that was in, in late 1993. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Is that right? Your ballpark, 94, somewhere in there. What the heck? But anyway, <laughs> somewhere in the 90s. And by then, you know, Carbondale had changed quite a lot. And I, I don't know if I was homesick or what, but, you know, after living in, in Honduras, obviously, and after living in Connecticut, you know, for, for quite a few years, you come back and, and, and th things seem a little bit different to you somehow. You know, the, the, there had been, you know, some development built up. And uh, like I say, I, I kind of missed it. You know, in Connecticut, there's no – national uh, forest or anything the access yeah. to um, public grounds is, is there there just is very little people think oh well you go to the beach and everything else yeah if you can find a public beach you know it's much different than if you go to florida or texas you know that i will say at least the, the beaches are more public there in connecticut that's that's not really the case so i think some of that kind of maybe maybe in, uh, affected my decision and stuff so we ended up you know moving back here and I worked for, you know, construction for a short amount of time and then, and then worked for a manufacturer here in town, actually, for six years before I ended up with the city. So did you just apply and that was that? Yeah, I, I basically applied out of desperation because uh, <laughs> I had, had, had my, and he, my wife. here we are years and years later <laughs> out of desperation for you, John Lindsay. Well, you know, I, 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 I think it sounds like I, I feel like Odysseus in the in the uh, Odyssey, you know, he, he, you know, um, but uh, I had basically I wasn't happy at my old job. But I basically quit one day. Yeah. Gave him two weeks notice and said, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. They yeah. tried to hire me back, and I did not want to go back. Do you want to say who it was that you no, were? No, I don't want to say who it was. Okay. Um, <laughs> my wife, at the time, we only had one child. We had a you know, nice little house. I mean, we were, we were stable enough economically. My wife had a job at the Jackson County Nursing Home. There you go. And um, so, you know, we were okay. And then, you know, I saw this job come up for a housing rehab specialist in a newspaper. I said, you know, I said, I'm going to apply for this. And... The guy that ran the department, ran building neighborhood services at the time, was Morris McDaniel, who, oddly enough, lived two doors away from me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'd been living there for a while, so, you know, he knew what kind of person I was, and I interviewed for it. And I'd also had done, even before I, I moved to, or even when I was in Connecticut, I'd done a lot of volunteer work for Habitat for Humanity, among other things. But I was really big into Habitat Humanity and was for several years when I moved back to Carbon. I was a site supervisor, and I was on their board for several years. Mm -hmm. Um so, you know, I, my heart was really in it and, and was the, the whole time I did the job. I loved the job, um, but I had no plan again. You know, I mean, if they write my autobiography, it might be John Lindsay, the clueless one. Um, <laughs> but it's strange the way that thing, things take you and fate takes you. Um, you know, I, I always tell people whether you believe in God or Allah or Jehovah or whatever higher being there is, that's cool. I'm fine with it. You know, I believe in God and, uh, and I believe in fate. And I, and I believe that, that sometimes God drops uh, things in front of you. And if you're too dumb to take notice, then, you know, it's your fault. Um, 
<laughs> and I've been very fortunate. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to be dismissive of that. I've I've been very fortunate in life. Uh, my life has taken some strange turns, but but I've I've been very fortunate. And uh, um, so you know, I eventually you know I I just worked my way up to City Carmel. After a couple years in housing rehab, I I then you know was a building inspector, and I love that job. Um, and then you know moved up to the the supervisor of the division. Um, and it's, and it's, you know, code enforcement is a different world. It's, it's a tough thing. Uh, yes, it's some technical knowledge, but it's also the biggest knowledge is how to deal with people. And, you know, and, and that, that, you know, the funny thing is there's no, you know, they can send you to training classes and everything else, but it's, and the reason I try and really keep my inspectors involved and, and keep them happy and keep them employed is because a lot of that just goes with being on the job. It's just that thing that you, you can't teach anybody. You really have to get in there and, and and learn it, and it's tough. And I, you know, I had some growing pains. I I definitely had some some mistakes and things like that. And so, you know, I try to to give you know the benefit of my experience to younger people, you know, because a lot of the people that are you know that getting hired into my divisions, inspectors or planners or whatever, are younger than I was when when I started. I was 39 when I started with the city. Yeah. So. Um, uh, you know, the things that you can do in a factory or do on a construction site are much different than what you can do within city hall or when you're, and when you're dealing with the public mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, Tom Grant, who's currently a city council person, you know, was, was one of my first supervisors and, and him and Ted Mealing shed a lot of, uh, who was, had the housing, um, uh, specialist job before I did shed a lot, a lot on things. You know, I think it was Thomas said, don't forget who you're working for. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important when you work in city government, don't forget who you're working for. You're working for the citizens. You're not working for your own beliefs. You're not working for, you know, if, if you're a Democrat or a Republican, you're, you're working for what's in that code book. You're working for what the city council has passed. It's a democracy. You know, they run the show. You, you know, um, you put their their intentions into actions. So that's an important thing. No, and you also you also take care of your citizenry. One of the things recently done that I'm very proud of is we had a problem up on North Washington with parking. I won't get into the details, but you got some commercial properties conflicting with some residential properties. We'd gotten a lot of complaints from citizens not being able to park, not being able to get their mail because people were parked in front of their mailbox. And we passed around a petition last February to get a neighborhood parking permit program set up, which was already in the code. And we have several of those, uh, those parking areas around town. Mm -hmm. And I was very proud that we got that in front of council and the council voted to, to enact it. And it went under some discussion. One of the things one of the council people say, which I think was a valid comment, was, is this something that city staff initiated? Or was it something that came from the citizenry? Well, it came from the citizenry. The citizenry wanted it, okay? And then obviously after signing a petition, I think it became more clear after talking to people that, uh, you know, that we felt we were being responsive to what the citizenry wanted and working within the guidelines of an existing code. And, and we followed all the, the things by the book on that. And I, and I think the, the community will benefit uh, f from that action. But that's a, that's a good illustration of what I say, you know, and don't forget who you're working for, you know. Uh, there's a lot of great people in Carbondale, 
Yeah. I wholeheartedly believe that in every section of this town. And I, I, you know, I used to joke even back when I was just a building inspector. My goal in life is to know everybody in Carbondale. Uh -huh. Right now, I'm only up to like 80%. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you're in a transient turnover community, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is an issue. But there are a lot of great people in Carbondale. And, and you know, Carbondale, that's what makes Carbondale is, is the people here. Yeah. Carbondale, you know, it takes a lot of flack and, and uh, for being Carbondale. If we're you know, just being we, we, we're not Centralia. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. We're not Marion. We're not Murfreesboro. We're Carbondale. We're not Anna. We're not DeSoto. We're Carbondale. And we should be proud of Carbondale. We should be proud of the multiculturalism. We should be proud of, of having a university. We should be proud of having hippies. And we should be proud of having a music scene. <laughs> We should be proud of having churches and mosques and a synagogue and a Hindu temple. We should be proud of that, okay? And here's a story for you. Like I say, both sides of my family were from Centralia. So almost every weekend, especially in the summer, we had to make the trek up old Route 51 mm -hmm. to Centralia, right? Place which really, after several weekends, you've seen it all and you really don't need to be there every weekend. But we go up to see my grandparents and do some chores around their house and stuff like that. So I'll never forget, I'm bored one day, and I'm out in front of my grandma Spray's house, downtown Centray, and this kid rides up on his bicycle, and he's like selling ice cream cones or something, you know? So I, I buy one off him. I'm bored. I'm sitting out there on the front steps basically doing nothing, you know? And uh, he says, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from Carbondale. And now, granted, this is like in about 1970, 1971, maybe even earlier than that. Uh-huh. And he goes, oh, Carbondale. Oh, that's where all those hippies are from. So when I point out hippies as part of the description, that, that's kind of a thing that sticks in my <laughs> mind, you know. And, uh, and so, you know, if that was back in 1971, you know, and that was the impression, you know, I, I'm sure that people view Carbondale as a kind of a different place, kind of a maybe a hippie place, maybe a liberal place, whatever. You know, and I'm fine with that. You know, Carbondale needs to be Carbondale. Yeah. Uh, Carbondale, you know, needs to... It needs to do its own thing. Um, I think the city council, too, is, is very good in, in representing that myself. Um, and, again, that's difficult, too, with all the politics and everything going on now. And I'm, I'm sure we even sit in the, you know, in, the, in the, the way people think about the COVID virus and everything else. Uh, you know, communities have their own own character. Well, and that so that that's what I was laughing about just a couple minutes ago when you were kind of talking through stuff and the notoriety and some of these things that come along with you. Have you gotten any one off uh text messages or phone calls from people since that post to the group a couple days back? No, you know, it, it, it's really <laughs> funny because I've always put my cell phone number and that is a city cell phone by the way. So <laughs> that's not your personal personal no, cell phone. All right. But but you know, I mean and there's two, there's two kinds of people in the world, Nathan. There's people that that are their job. Yeah. Okay? I mean, yeah, you know, they got their family life and everything, but their job is very important to them. Yeah. And that's the way I was raised. My dad's job was very important to him. I think every one of my brothers and sisters, their job is immensely important to them. I have a, I have a sister. My sister in Connecticut is a she, – she's a Navy veteran. She was a Navy officer. Mm -hmm. She's the one – Sibling that did not go to SIU because SIU did not have a nursing program. So uh -huh. she went to uh, St. Luke's Hospital nursing program in St. Louis. And uh, 
then joined the Navy. She's a, she's a Navy uh, Vietnam-era veteran, okay, and an officer. And, um, and you know, did a, like a four-year stint in the Navy and saw a lot, of, a lot of guys come back from Vietnam pretty banged up. My brother also, and I want to say I'm very proud of the veterans in my family. My, my brother was uh, in the 1st Infantry Division in the Vietnam War. He actually dropped out of SIU and enlisted uh, to be in the Army and, and wanted to be in the infantry. My, my father was actually a World War II uh, Navy vet, and my uncle uh, Adolfo, his, his Italian name was Adolfo, but obviously when you're in World War II and Hitler's name is Adolf, you don't want to use Adolfo or Adolf. So the only time I ever heard anybody call him Adolf was, was as a joke, but he always went by Adolfo, which they cut the off the front. But he was actually a, a first division uh, Army veteran and, and kind of the, the family war hero, him and my brother, uh, because he, he went in on D-Day and, and was wounded. And my brother was wounded in Vietnam, too. So um, I, I, it's very important. And, and Carbondale and SIU do have a very, very big veteran community. Um, but, uh, again, she, you know, she, she uh, then made a career out of nursing, my sister Mary. And she's, uh, you know, one of my idols. Uh, very hardworking gal, and uh, she just retired, or is just actually now retiring at the age. Well, I won't tell you. She is, she's, in her early 70s, okay. And not one of the. She's head of a visiting nursing agency in New London, Connecticut, basically. Um, not working because she needs money, but working because her job is so much who she is. My mm -hmm. job is very much who I am. So. When it comes down to handing out my business cards or my cell phone being on that card, and I tell my inspectors the same thing. Hand out business cards. Have people contact you. Get to know the people in town. Get to know those anchor people in the neighborhood, the people that you know that you can trust, okay? If you need to find out some information, okay? If you need to see what's going on, if they've got a complaint about something that you didn't see, okay, we need to know who those people are. So when that, when that card, and this, you know, by the way, Nathan, this is the second time my business card has been put on Facebook this year. Okay? <laughs> what was the first one? Uh, the first one, I won't go into detail, but it was a certain <laughs> um, gymnasium, let's say. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was back in late spring. And the comments then were very much different than what you saw on Facebook this last time. Yeah. Okay. And I think that says something about people now maybe taking the coronavirus, you know, more seriously than what they were then. Well, I think it also says something to the effect of how serious we have taken it from the get-go, much in part to professionals and mindful politicians like yourself. You're on the professional side, but, you know, Mayor Henry and, and the council and everybody, you know, taking the right steps and saying, you know, we're, we're taking the coronavirus seriously from, from day one. Um, you know, that's, that's, it shows consistency on your end and city policy leading the want of the people out front as well. Oh, I definitely agree. And again, this is, a, again, it's a good example of why I say Carbondale needs to be Carbondale. Yeah. If people want to portray us as a more progressive, even maybe possibly a little bit more liberal town, I don't think Carbondale person is all that liberal. But I, but I think if respecting human rights and I think if respecting people's way of life is, is liberal, then 
If the shoe fits, wear it. Be proud of it. We should be because we're going to be vindicated, okay, especially in, in, in the virus situation with our actions. And, uh, and, I, and I think council and the mayor and the city manager have done the right things, you know, with that. I know that they're frustrated. I know that they want to do more. And, it's, and again, you know, as I said earlier, you know, the small businesses, you know, I, I don't want to be hardened to their plight. Yeah. You know, they have a tough time. They had a tough time before the coronavirus. It's not easy to be a small business person in the state of Illinois. There's a, there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of taxes, okay? The state is having some problems. In Carbondale, it's even compounded by the, the fact that SIU, for whatever reason, has had, had a downturn. It's had some issues. Some of it might be demographics. Some of it might be politics. I really don't know. I'm really not that smart of a guy, mm -hmm. okay? But there is an issue, okay? And those are all factors when, when you – when your student population goes down basically 7,000 people in Carbondale in, in, in 10 or 12 years, you know, that's, that's 7,000 less people that, that are going to eat at, at a restaurant, okay, uh, especially a small mom and pop downtown. And, you know, every week I try and eat, especially before the virus, I tried to eat at, at a downtown restaurant, you know, and, uh, and not just go through the, the drive through at Burger King or McDonald's or go home for lunch, okay. Um, because I think that, that we, we should support our local businesses as public servants, okay? Um, so, you know, that's a difficult thing, and I, and I know the council thinks about it. I know the mayor. The mayor's a small businessman. I know he thinks about it, and I, and I know the city manager does. You know, we have tried very hard. Our, our economic development uh, director, Stephen Mitchell, is a very, very good, hardworking guy, and he's tried – his best, I know, to help people with, with coronavirus relief uh, for small businesses, paycheck protection plans, and, and things like that. So, you know, we're doing all that we can, but we do try and play by the rules. We do try and play by what the, the governor's guidelines uh, have pointed. And, I, and I, again, I think that we will be vindicated. This is a serious thing. 280-some thousand people have died, okay? And you know, I know a lot of people that have had it, and uh, while I don't know people that personally have died from it, I do have friends that, that have, have lost friends because of the COVID. And uh, again, I, you know, if Carbondale wants to be portrayed as progressive or intellectual, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think being called a, a, a science believer and an intellectual <laughs> is a bad thing, okay? Um you know, so I, I think that we just need to be comfortable in our own skin. You know, the because we can look around us and see what the outcomes would be if we were more relaxed. Right. The, we're experiencing outcomes with us doing as best that we can right now. But there are there are places where you see the outcomes with them not doing so. Right. And, wh and what the difference is and what the numbers would be like here if we were much more loose in saying, ah, no, we don't really need to abide by these restrictions. We don't really need to think about the science behind wearing a mask and, you know, airflow through a building and social distancing and all of these different components. We're just, we're just going to let it ride, right? It would, it would be a much more painful environment we're living in right now. I believe so. And, and you know, with, with our citizenry being so mobile anyway, you know, that's, 
that's uh, you know that that makes it more difficult. I'm astounded I think, at how well SIU has done through this. We have gotten lucky. It has not been perfect, right? We've still had plenty of folks that our students are on campus or the basketball team or whatever else catch COVID, but comparable to other university settings around this country just as well, we're nowhere near the same problem positioning that some of these other places are where thousands and thousands of students are getting it. And they're, you know, not much larger than we are in terms of size. Well, and I know for a fact that, that some of the disbelievers who, you know, I'll never forget, friend of mine stopped i was i was mowing the lawn at my church downtown at uh, i won't i won't plug my church but uh <laughs> you can um, plug your church if you want i, I can i can do that yeah plug okay. your church go first christian church okay <laughs> i won't say the home of the real christians but um, <laughs> but i i i mow the lawn and take care of the yard up there and not and have for a long time i never get somebody stops yeah we were just over at a baseball game in here nobody had any masks on or anything else blah blah blah, blah, blah. you know and sure enough Several months later, you know, one of their family members came up positive. Okay. Now, obviously, it was not in relation to the, the, the sporting event. But mm -hmm. my point is, is that that may be what it takes to make people believers. And that's sad. Yeah. Um, I, I think in many ways that obviously the, the, the politicus, politicization, I don't know. You, you helped go. me out that on that word, word there, Nathan. I should have had more coffee before I came. But, um, <laughs> uh, that is sad, okay? It's very, very sad that, that politics has to be um, a part of, of this whole public health nightmare. Yeah. But I think that, that something that you're going to find, there's going to be a, a lot of social changes due to the coronavirus, and, and I think that hopefully people will look again at things like, like, the, uh, like Obamacare, mm -hmm. you know? It always tripped me up why people were against Obamacare, okay? Obamacare had, you know, protected people. It, I think they were upset sometimes because they either had to pay the penalty for not getting insurance or it made them get insurance or something else. But, you know what, you take in, into account all of the small uh, health care providers right down to your private doctor, who in mm -hmm. some cases are small business people, you know, a lot of those people were, were not getting paid because – Clients would skip out on them. You would think the Republicans and conservatives would be all over that as a good thing. Yeah. You know, that now we, we're going to ensure that health care providers continue to do things like practice health care in rural communities mm -hmm. like ours, okay, uh, because they know that they're going to get paid. And as you know, it's very hard. If you've, if you've tried to find a general practice doctor lately, it's pretty hard, okay? And that says something about, you know, about the whole healthcare system and the economy of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a slant. I think that the pandemic is also going to shed some light on, you know, I was actually heard this on, uh, well, it was touched on a little bit on a news show. I can't remember which one I was watching I, or listening maybe to NPR. But, you know, here we are in nine months, we've been able to come up with a vaccine for, for the coronavirus, mm -hmm. and yet we still have no vaccine for, for, for HIV AIDS, mm -hmm. okay? And so I think that, you know, people are looking at a little bit of that. Have, have, is the HIV AIDS uh, issue not being dealt with because of politics? Because it's a, it's a, it's a disease, it's, it's something that's by and large, you know, related to, to homosexuality and drug use? You know, is that why we don't have a, a vaccination or, or 
or a, or a real cure for it. So I think the, the COVID, the coronavirus, is, is going to shed some light on things like that. It's also going to shed a light, again, on the economy about things like people working from home, mm-hmm. okay, about doing remote learning and, and, and in schools. Um, I have a kid in high school. I did not send him to, to school. No. Okay? No, he is remote absolutely. learning. And yeah. I'm fine with that. I tell you what, man, I've been really impressed. You know, we're, we're lucky because we have twins, right? So it's it's easier when the twins kind of have each other to, to, to work off of mm-hmm. uh, and to follow the same course of school. But they're they're flourishing, right? This is this is a fit for them to just hang out at home and work through the computer and still have a social interaction through the video, but then have like separate mindful time. I mean, you think about some kids that, uh, you know, my, my biological son has autism uh, and while we've not gotten my, my stepson diagnosed, it's like the same things that I understand in Mason, I understand in Zachary, right? Like I can apply these things uh, from child to child. And it's like when you when you remove them or, or pay, she's got she's got uh, ADHD um, that, that we address, you remove some of these classroom stimulations and you allow kids to both have that social stimulation for part of it, but also to remove themselves, to separate their their mind and, and to organize their thoughts. And all of a sudden, wow, their ability to flourish is is there is set. And, you know, kids that may otherwise struggle in school can now have better success at it. Uh, you know, and it's just the the fact that we live in a world where everybody needs their own individualized way to learn. Well, that's true. It, it, it's hard though, and I and I realize, you know, again, I feel very blessed in life, and I'm sure you do too. You know, we're we're you know we have a lot of advantages of having things like computers and internet access and everything yeah. else. But and I realize there are a lot of families that are struggling with that. But again, the the safety factor uh, of sending kids back to school is is uh, you know I I think an important thing. Yeah. Um, I realize it's a socialization of being at school. My son is a very social guy and uh, like his dad, you know, and uh, <laughs> um, it's tough for him. But, you know, he's managing. I, I got to say the kids have, have, have really stood up. And my wife is a high school teacher in another community. And, and I want to say, you know, it's the teachers, too, is part of all, all the political thing. I think yeah. they took a lot of a lot of hits, too, very unfairly, in my opinion, about, you know, oh, yeah, kids need to go back to school and blah, 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 blah. You know, I guess. But you know what? <laughs> Those teachers are, are, you know, and and janitors and cooks and everything else and, and administrators, you know, they're they're all getting, you know, a, a, an increased risk of exposure. Mm-hmm. You know, say what you want to say. And this is true, I think, in, in, in everything nowadays, again, being in a in a place where we frequently uh, are the the target for everybody's slings and arrows on the face of the earth, you know, or at least in a community Carbondale, you know, <laughs> code enforcement's an easy an easy target. We don't yeah. carry guns, tasers, you know, nerfs. Uh, 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 sp- You're not the violent pepper mechanism spray, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. We're out there, and by God, we just had to get by on our on our brains and and our good looks, you know. But uh, <laughs> you know. I think people, one thing I see, and again, maybe some of it's the virus, maybe some of it is, is, the, is the election, but people have really lost a lot of their sense of civility, okay, in the world, not so much in Carbondale. I, I'm, I'm proud of my town. I think that really, to be honest with you, that people are still pretty civil in Carbondale. There's still people who are pretty decent. Um, obviously, and one of the things, too, with, with the whole thing that was posted this week on, on WTF, you know, I, I want people to understand that 
that when we go talk to somebody, whether they've not mowed their grass or there's litter in their grass or it's a, it's a high school kid or, a, sorry, a college kid with 40,000 red Solo cups in their front yard from the party <laughs> the night before or a restaurant that's, that's, that's serving inside, we still try to treat those people with respect. We yeah. try to talk to them. We try to get them to understand why this is a code in the first place or an ordinance in the first place, okay? And, you know, we're not the Gestapo. We're not, we're not you know, we're not police, okay? We're not um, the FBI. We're not the health department, okay? We're kind of the catch-all that does everything that's, that's spilled over the edge of all those agencies. Yeah. It still needs to be dealt with, you know? The, the comments to me on, on WTF were, were kind of funny because, to be honest with you, yes, we've issued a lot of notices. We've issued very, very few citations. Some of those actual, some of the citations, too, have come out of places like the city attorney's office, which yeah. i got to say is a very, very good office. We have some very, very talented people in the city attorney's office that, that are also trying to do the right thing, okay? But if I was as a bad a dude as I was made out to be on, on WTF, a couple times now, or, or on Facebook, I should say, one of the folks I don't think was on WTF. Man, I would they would be making a series of movies about me, like Rambo or well, something. Here's here's you know? what's here's what's interesting to me about this, John. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say one thing. I'm gonna transition out uh, on another one because you go in and you treat people with respect. People get more angry at that. Because it's more difficult to demonize you when you come in and you are simply applying code, but also treating people with respect, right? It's hard to really attack somebody when they are both respectful and just following the rules in something like code enforcement. So that's where I can see some of that additional rage coming in. You know, you're too nice of a guy. <laughs> well, I don't think I'm too nice of a guy either. I, I, I talk to my wife and kids. I'll probably straighten you out on that. But, um, um, and that's, again, something learned. Again, this was not me. Boy, when I was, you, you needed to know me back about 17, 18 years ago. I uh -huh. mean, I could be a real, I'm going to say it. I, hopefully this is not going to get you you can, trouble, no, we, we do. I, we, we can curse on the show. You're okay, good. all right. Well, good, because you really need to put a curse jar over here because you could retire <laughs> on that joker. But um, I was a real smart ass. Yeah. Because I thought I needed that. I thought I needed that tough, macho stuff, you know. I I thought I really needed that to do my job. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, and we, we have gone through training about de-escalation and everything else. And, um, you know, one of the things I've learned is that, you know, I really don't have to be that way. I can still go up there. And, and you know, it, it takes a lot of guts to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody, um, you know, and, and look them in the eye and tell them straight out what's going on and not stammer or stutter or be afraid. You don't know. You you could knock on that door. You could be uh, somewhere in a, in a crummy neighborhood, and you could have an ax murder on the other side. You could have somebody shoot you through that door, you know. Again, it, it, people want to criticize the police nowadays, but they can't fathom the difficulty of their job, okay? And, and I've done a fair amount of time with the Carbondale Police. You know, that Spanish came in handy many years later, and I, mm -hmm. I was actually tapped to be a translator for many, many times. And while I was never placed in a life or death situation, I did get to see a lot of the, of the seedy underside of society in that, you know. 
a lot of the a lot of the translations that I was doing was actually for for uh, child abuse cases, mm -hmm. things like that. Sometimes with DCFS in there and stuff like that, and other things as well. But you know, you really get to see some some disturbing things. So, you know, there's there's that aspect to it. And I somebody was saying the other day about you know we were doing my guys were doing something and they were saying you know make sure they don't get hurt or something like that or something like that. And I said you know to be honest with you, I'm way more concerned about what's on the other side of that door I'm knocking on than, than picking up a filing cabinet. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, that, that's, that's the aspect. And, and hopefully that when you, and I, and I, again, I've tried to build a, a reputation with BNS and, and try to get some name recognition out in the public. Again, it goes back to handing out the business cards and having your cell phone on the business cards and, and, you know, having your name on your shirt and your name on the car and things like that. Um, you know, trying to know that when that car pulls up, we're not here to, to give you a hard way to go. We're here to clean up your neighborhood. We're here to deal with the situation. Okay. And I, and when I'm talking to people in their neighborhood about their trash or the way their house looks, I'm trying to, you know, express them on them, express upon them. This is your neighborhood. Okay. Your kids are living here. Your mother's living here. Your wife is living here. Okay. If it benefits anybody to straighten out your property, it's you, okay, all right? So we try and, and you know, deliver those messages respectfully, and that's the same thing that, that we do, you know, with any kind of COVID requirements, okay? But it is a serious thing. Do you think that personality is part of why you're taking that next step? I don't know, really. I'd say fate <laughs> I'm, is the I'm reason. I'm just stuck I, with again, it. Again, fate <laughs> has interrupted my life and, and – um, I'm not going to sell off happily into the sunset in the, in the exact same role uh, for the next sun, is the six years that, that I've had. So, um, Is that your countdown to retirement in six years now? Probably. I will uh, – <laughs> I, I, you know, I know I only look like I'm, you know, probably 48. 35, <laughs> but next month, basically a, a month from today, I turn 60 years old. Holy cow, Phil. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you say you're 31. I mean, come on, I got power tools older than you. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite sure I have clothing old, older than you. Um, it might be the underwear you're wearing right now. Well, I hope not. No. Um, but, uh, you know, you go through different stages in life again. Like I say, you know, my life has been kind of a journey. And I, and I think that a lot of people that you talk to, um, I'm sure if you talk to Mary Henry or, or uh, Terry Bryant or um, – uh, Many other other people, notable figures in in public life or professional life, um, our buddy Peter Gregory. There for you instance. go. Okay, there's a guy. I can't, how many times? I, I how many times with. he's leveraged? Oh, we can we can take care of this. I'll just go talk to John Lanzini. Yeah. We used to play baseball together. That was well, his shtick. I was like, listen, Peter, it doesn't matter whether you played baseball with John Lanzini when he was a kid or not. John Lanzini's going to treat you just the same. Well. <laughs> And I love Peter. He, he his his enthusiasm is infectious. But and he's the exact kind of guy, you know, that makes Carbondale, Carbondale. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a. Uh, I don't know. If this show is probably way before your time, but there used to be a show about this little town in Alaska called Northern Exposure. Uh -huh. You ever seen that? I, it's I've kind of an seen. off the wall type of thing. But sometimes I I kind of think like that. But you know, Carbondale is full of characters, and it always has been. Uh -huh. uh, it, you know, there's. 
a guy down there on the, the corner of uh, North Wall and Main, you know, dancing around in a colorful costume yeah. on a corner. You know, well, some people would be just so like, ah, what is that? Well, I don't know. You tell me what it is. He's not doing anything wrong. <laughs> you know, maybe he just has there livening up people's lives. I mean, he's not doing anything wrong. You know, it's just Carbondale. Yeah. You know, and so, and I, I kid too, I said, you know, one of these days, you know, I may leave my employment early and start printing, you know, keep Carbondale weird bumper stickers and selling them <laughs> and, and make so much money, I don't even need to work anymore. The fact of the matter is, I don't think Carbondale is weird, but the fact of the matter is we do have our very own culture, our own character that, that makes it a place that, that I see. And I see all the time on Facebook and social media, uh, it, it, like, for instance, one of the groups I'm, I'm very big into is the Southern Illinois Hiking uh, page with, with uh -huh. Sean Grossman, which is really cool. And you see a lot of people talk about how beautiful Southern Illinois is and that that draws them here. You know, hey, I just moved to Carbondale. I was reading some post last night. I just moved to Carbondale from Utah. I don't know anybody, or my husband and I don't know anybody. And, my, and the outpouring of people that would respond to mm -hmm. them is like, hey, you know, we can meet up for a hike. We can do this if you need help this. There's people looking, you know, for help because their, their house burned or because they're having a tough time. Um, you know, the outpouring of, of, of love and, and, and uh, support for, for people, it, to me, is, is a really great thing. Mm -hmm. You see it in the, in the food banks that we run, in the warming center. I know you just had Carmelita on the, on the show. Uh, a marvelous person. Yeah. Uh, you know, things like that really, really restores your, your faith in humans. Um, the, uh, you know, even the, and again, while, while things happen, like the, the, the marches, you know, uh, against, you know, police brutality or whatever, or against Trump or, or whatever that we had this summer, you know, those were fine. They, you know, people were, were nonviolent. I, I know there was a little bit of fuss, you know, when the Trump rally drove through, but, you know, for the most part, people expressed themselves. They did it in a nonviolent, uh, you know, um, way. Um, I thought the police reaction to them was very, very good, uh, which made me very proud of, of my friends who work for Carbonell PD. Um, I'm going to get out another plug. I plug my church. I'm going to plug Stan Reno. Plug him. Okay. Uh, man, our interim chief, um, and, and for a long time, our deputy chief, Stan Reno, great guy. Um, and he's, he's the kind of person that, that, that needs to be in that job and, and, you know, I might get in trouble for this, but I, I certainly hope that they name him the permanent chief. Uh, Carbondale Police, you know, it's a hard time to be be a police officer right now. Um, I have a son that's, you know, he's a corrections officer. It's not a real easy time to be a corrections officer. I have a son that wants to be a police officer. And it's a very difficult job. And, and with the politics, and again, there's a lot of talk about defunding the police or reorganizing the police or something like that. You know, Again, after my experience with translating with police, and then also, you know, sometimes we do we do activities with police enforcement activities. It's a tough thing to be a cop, you know, in in any place. And I think Carbondale PD has done a really really good job of of doing things the way they should be done, uh, you know, without an abuse of force and, and things like that. Um, are they perfect? No, I'm not perfect either. I actually made a mistake like back in like probably like 1986, you know. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is. You know, we've got to sit down and we've got to talk to each other. We've had some community forums. I know right now they're doing a 5-on-5 
uh, forum with the public, and we've got to continue those kind of communication things, okay? We've got to find a common ground. We've got to find ways to work together and to live together in this community for the overall good, okay? It doesn't mean that we need to be Stepford wives or we need to be programmed robots and all follow the same political line or anything else, but we do need to think about what's going to make this town better, reducing crime, economic development, job creation, a good, livable, clean, safe community. I think those are all things that, that anybody can get behind, okay? How we do it? Well, that may be uh, you know, a little bit different thing, but I think that we all need to look at that common good. And I tell people all the time, and we talked about this earlier, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. If your house looks like a, a, a dump and you've got abandoned cars in the front yard or the paint's peeling or your lawn's overgrown or your, or your trees are grown up into the house, your gutters are falling off, you're part of the problem, okay? All right? You're part of the problem. Fix your place, okay? Because I don't want to be over there telling you. I shouldn't have to be over there telling you to fix your place, whether it's your own house, your commercial property, your rental property, okay? I shouldn't have to tell you not to blow off that stop sign or that, uh, or that light. Get a grip, okay? Act like a responsible member of society. And there's just so many things like that, you know? When you're at the grocery store, go pick up an extra bag of canned food and give it to that food pantry, okay? Uh, go down there and drop some money in that Salvation Army bucket, you know. Um, tell that cashier at, at Walmart or at the drive through at McDonald's how good a job they're doing, you know. Maybe even leaving them a tip. Because I'll tell you what, during the pandemic, people like that have had a rough time. And I think, I, again, I think people in some of those jobs, there's, there's very little respect for the working people nowadays in, in, in a lot of cases. You know, those people are over there working hard. Those people that drive through restaurants and other restaurants, carry out, Pagliais, Quattro's, all these places, you know, they're, they're working hard and they, they deserve just some common decency, you know, and I think that's something that, 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 you know, would go a long way here and everywhere in the world. Common decency. Like to end these on a lesson and there's no better one than what John Lanzini has shared with us in this podcast, episode 34 of the WTF Carbondale podcast. Um, God, it's just, these are the people that we live with. These are how much they care about the people around them. Um, and you're one of them just the same. Uh, have a good one, whatever that one may be.